Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, an Associate Professor of Politics at York University. This is Academic Antis. We regret to inform you. These are the five words that we see a lot as academics. These words hurt every time we read them. In Canada, these are words that some of you have recently seen. That's because in early June, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council released the results of one of its big research funds, the Inside Development Grant. During these times, there was a lot of happiness for people who were successful. But for those who didn't receive the grant, come sadness, disappointment, feelings of being an imposter, and even self-hatred. So that's why we thought we'd carve out some space to really just talk about research funding and the politics of it all. Joining me today is Academic Auntie's producer extraordinaire and recently promoted associate professor at Athabasca University, Dr. Nisha Nath. I'm so glad we could make some time to talk about this, Nisha, and let me start with this question. Are research funds allocated primarily out of merit? Okay, so first I will say that I feel like I'm in a transitional space as compared to somebody like you, where I've had some granting success, but I am not by any means an insider into that world. I've served as an external reviewer for sure, but I am not, I'm not an insider like you are, Ethel. Mm. But I I think I, I'm in a transitional space in that I can see the ways in which these awards can be so, in some ways, arbitrarily allocated. And it's tricky to say that, right? Because we also know that that people do good work and they work hard and then they get grants, right? So it, it It's tricky to balance both of those things. But I was thinking about this and thinking that in some ways it really parallels the job market process mm. because you can think about the committee composition, right? And you have a closed circle of folks that are often making these decisions around grants. And especially if those are people who have received funding by those same granting bodies, that circle gets really tight in terms of how they understand research coming before them. Who gets chosen as external reviewers can be quite political and in terms of how expertise is constructed. Also, another piece is we all get very different support for institutions, right, in terms of editing support or insider perspective on how these committees make these decisions. So I have experienced now a few different institutions by collaborating with people in terms of support, and that support varies dramatically. And then the mentoring, right? Mm. Like the mentoring that we each have directly in terms of how to write grants, but then also who is who has shared successful grants. I know, Ethel, that was one of the things that you did with me and Willow quite early on. You shared your successful grant application, and that really helped when I didn't really have a sense of how to write it in language that would be legible to those kinds of funding bodies. And then also gatekeeping and Mm. disciplines, right? All of these junctures that we experience in the job market process, I think, replicate when we're talking about granting too. But you tell me your perspective on on where this notion of merit is really not necessarily at play in these funding processes. I love the comparison with the academic job market. And I also echo 
the way you've constructed some of the larger dynamics at play, much like applying for an academic job, there is a hidden curriculum when it comes to writing grants. And not all of us have received mentorship when it comes to how to successfully present our projects in ways that are legible to funding bodies. It's not a simple matter of applying for a grant. There are languages we've got to deploy. We've got to tap into institutional resources as well. A lot of these grants are also evaluated on the basis of institutional support. And if you are in an institution that doesn't support you or your work, then that means that you probably won't score as high. Absolutely. There's also the matter of being strategic when trying to figure out which discipline to apply for. A lot of people who haven't received that mentorship just assume that they just check the box for the discipline where they are, you know, check the box for the discipline Mm -hmm. that they're in. But frequently, we also have to look at which disciplines are affiliated with other disciplines. For example, Mm -hmm. I know for political science, our field, it, I think, is law, political science, and economics, which therefore means that the people on the awards committee will might have economists who have no idea about mm-hmm. social movements and things like that, right? So there are all of these different layers, all of these different considerations. There is a hidden curriculum at play. There is a question of institutional support. There is a question of mentorship. And so I think one thing I have to stress is it is not just about merit, and I'm saying this quotation marks, mm-hmm. with, that determines whether grants are successful. There's a lot of other factors that come into play, right? And so I think one thing I also wanted to stress as well is that a lot of us have had rejections too, right? Like, I feel oftentimes when you receive news that your funding application was rejected, you feel you internalize that shame. You think mm. your project's not worthwhile. You think you're not worthwhile. You think your CV's not that good. I do want to kind of emphasize that it's not you. A lot of it is structural. And so I think there's feedback that can be useful. And much, I guess, when you turn in an article for review, look at the feedback that you've been given by reviewers, take what you can and discard what you don't think is relevant to. But again, it's important to look at the structural elements as well. Right, Antonisha? <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing, too, is around feedback. I think that not everybody always knows that they can get feedback, right? Because I don't know that that is always an automatic part of the process. And then there are other different grants where you only get feedback if you make it after a certain point, which points again to another kind of structural barrier. But I think that feedback does become really important. But I guess also the reality is that feedback too can be quite idiosyncratic depending on a committee composition. So In part, it might be taking those skills that we learn to read those peer review pieces of feedback that we get and finding a way to hone in on just those things that actually are helpful in terms of crafting a grant. Because I will say that I have received some atrocious um, (laughs) feedback, right? I won't speak too much in detail about it, but feedback that should never have made its way back to me. So I think there is also even that mentoring is also mentoring about how to receive and read that feedback with a critical eye in terms of, yeah, how to move forward after getting a rejection in a context where so many people are 
constantly celebrating, right? That's mm. hard, mm. right? And social media, everybody's like, oh, I got this or I have this job or all of that. That is a really, it's a really hard context in which to, to receive rejection when most of us are getting rejected all the time, right? Amidst those few rare moments of celebration. And I think I want to take this opportunity to also say that I have gotten rejected. And I would say that when it comes to feedback I've received in the wake of such rejection, some feedback, I would say, are spot on. Some feedback, Mm -hmm. I would say, highlight perhaps feasibility questions. Some of the reviewers would say, I don't think based on kind of the scope of this project, it will be feasible for the researcher and her team to to finish all of their project objectives within this given time frame. All of that is legit. But I Mm -hmm. think, Nisha, what you're pointing to is the fact that sometimes feedback doesn't actually disclose merit, but discloses the reviewer's bias. Mm -hmm. And you need a mentor, you need a community to help you parse out that feedback and make sense of that feedback. And as someone who is... I don't want to call myself more senior because I'm like, yo, I'm still <laughs> young, man. Like, <laughs> but like established. established oh, God, yeah. am I? I don't, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> yes, you just, are. No, I don't know. I'm making a face here. But yeah, okay. So as someone who's applied for a few of these things, I will share to listeners that the very first time I applied to be a Canada research chair, I was fresh out of being a postdoc. I had gotten a job offer at my current institution where they basically said that in order to have this tenure track job, you needed to have a successful CRC application, right? Mm-hmm. That was non-negotiable. So I had applied using projects that I had developed in support of migrant communities. My life's work has involved looking at migrant advocacy, immigration policy, and trying to use socially engaged research methodologies to make sure that academic knowledge isn't the be-all and end-all of my project, but also ensuring that kind of community outputs, community mobilization is key as well. So in a nutshell, that's what I put in my application, right? I want to look at migrant movements. I want to look at socially engaged research methodologies. I want to make sure that my outputs aren't just academic outputs, but also public outputs, right? That Mm. can lead to migrant justice. And I'm chuckling here. Some of the reviews were great. There was one Hmm. review that essentially, and I had applied through economics, law, and political science. There was one review that was basically like, this is not at all fitting the discipline. I don't understand why this project will focus on social movements. How is that political science? I would suggest that the researcher pivot and look at more relevant organizations such as the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And it was just weird because I was like, that's not even my project, right? I'm like Mm -hmm. the UN. I mean, of course, you know, I'm not saying don't study the UN, absolutely study the UN. But it was almost like they were looking at how they would want to proceed with a grant rather than taking as given the agenda I had set forth. Mm -hmm. So that I am I don't know. Now I'm laughing about it. But let me tell you, like when I received use of that, I was crying. I had just had Mm -hmm. a baby. I had just started this job. I remember getting an email from a dean saying that I basically got to revise and resubmit and I had to reapply again in the next cycle. 
And I was just because I had put in my heart and my soul in this project proposal, in this funding application, all while postpartum, right? Um, And so I felt like the biggest failure. And I think what really struck me at that moment was, thank God it was an R&R, because if it was a rejection, then that meant that I wouldn't be able to keep my tenure track job. But beyond that, I already Mm -hmm. felt like an imposter. And I already felt that I didn't have a space in the academy. So all of this combined, having a baby, my baby who's now, I guess now she's seven. At that point, she was only a few months old. It hurt. And it was only recently, only like a few weeks ago. And we'll link the tweet I put out there in our show notes. Only recently am I am I really coming public with that story? Because mm. um, I think I want people to know that it happens to all of us, right? Like people who you would think are more established. And so what happened was I rolled up my sleeves after kind of crying and, you know, after like a few weeks, um, rolled up my sleeves, worked with my institution, actually demanded my institution give me the supports, right? Mm. Because what had happened was they had assigned someone with an MBA to look over my grant. <laughs> oh. And I was writing things like Global South, da 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 da, and you know, and and then this 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 uh, research officer was fantastic personally, right? Like, not I'm not yeah. dissing, yeah, yeah. but they weren't understanding what I was getting at. So they would circle these phrases like Global South, underdevelopment, blah blah blah, and they'd be like, "Oh, I don't understand what that means," right? So there was already a misalignment when it came to expertise, and I also felt that there wasn't a robust commitment from my institution to show to the funding body that they were giving me institutional support. So what I then did was I actually like, I I rolled up my sleeves and I said, if you want this grant for me, as well as for the institution, because this grant will make the institution look good, you need to give me better supports. You need to give me X, Y, Z, right? Like in terms of kind of showing that the institution isn't just putting forward my file, but is actually giving me course releases, giving me their own research funds to match the funds that the funding body will give. And then they assigned me a research officer who understood what I was trying to do. But the difference is she understood what I was trying to do, but was able to use language that became more legible to the reviewers. And so rather than talking about like social movements, I was talking about interest groups, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it didn't, It I was still doing the same thing, yeah. but it just got framed in a different way such that people in our discipline would probably understand where I was coming from. It makes so much sense. And there's so much that is useful in what you said, like first being your strong advocacy for yourself in getting support. And of course, that cannot happen at all institutions. Some Mm -hmm. institutions will not do that. Some institutions aren't positioned to do that. Some institutions seem like they have contempt for research, to be honest. But that feels incredibly important that you said that as well. I think what was really hard at that point, too, was because I was so new in the institution. And this is for listeners who are new in their institutions, for early career researchers as well. I think knowing what the institution can offer in terms of support and asking trusted colleagues what you can ask for is key, right? Because when I was starting out in my institution, I wasn't sure what I could ask for. I was just grateful that I was being given this chance, right? And then when I understood that it's not just about turning in an application. It's about marshalling all of the institutional supports that was needed and also being strategic in terms of the language. That's when I finally understood 
kind of the larger the larger strategies involved with grant writing. So in short, mm-hmm. it's not just like applying and writing what you know. It's also about leveraging the institution and using the language that funders will understand. But that's how it happened with me. But that's not to say that that as you said, it are re- like the, these are resources, institutional supports that everyone can access. So again, I think the problem is structural as well, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, also, it it is like, you know, you know that I have a lot of respect for you in terms of your research and primarily like your ethical orientation to your research. And that was the other thing that I think is important to note about what you shared is this shift that had to happen with respect to language, which can be really hard when you love your research and you care about it in the way that you do and you feel like that language that you're using matters. So I think it can be something that is really challenging for people to like for you to start using the language of interest groups as opposed to social movements or for, you know, like there are all these moments when we're writing grants where we might be faced with in some ways stripping our work in some ways Mm -hmm. of some of the like really sharp political analysis and critique. And that is something that is very hard to do, but it can be done because somebody like you who carries on with this work ethically and with that sharp analysis and critique still manages to get funding, but then still manages to do this research alongside and in service to the communities that are that you are working with. So I just wanted to signal that because I don't think that we are are always trained throughout graduate school to be able to figure out how to even affectively respond to those shifts in our language because it's hard, right? Especially if we are researching, doing research in areas that are very proximate to us. Um, it can be hard to let go of that language. And it is. It's a messed up process to be legible. It's very 100%. messed up. A hundred percent. And I think, I think for me, I feel like I code switch a lot. Right. And I think it's not even just for funding applications. It's also when teaching, it's also when writing, right? Like you've got to know the language and the way your project needs to be framed within given circumstances for people, for funders or for students or for book reviewers to understand where you're getting at as well, right? I think that's important. I do have a question for you, Antonisha. A few people have been texting, have been messaging me, and are just like really rejected, dejected mm-hmm. because they've gotten rejected. What advice would you give them? Because I, I have to admit, I don't know if you even knew about the CRC story. I kept that close because I just was ashamed. I didn't want people to think I was not worthy. What would you say to people who are perhaps getting these letters and they're feeling really sad because they've put their heart and souls into an application that, you know, isn't easy to 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 finish, right? There's so many bloody like appendices that you need to put in and the budget alone is enough to make people walk away, right? What advice mm-hmm. would you give folks? I mean, I think there is the reality that it is just hard. Like it, I think that, you know, you've talked to so many guests about the battering that our self-esteem takes in this job. And that's a problem, right? That is a kind of a structural problem because there is kind of this epistemic violence that some of us that are constantly experiencing. I think that it's hard to remedy those affective responses because, of course, this is it's not just in the like the area of grants that we're experiencing those kinds of 
kind of rejections or forms of epistemic violence, however we want to frame it. It's happening in so many spaces, whether it be mm. conferences or on the job market or in our classrooms. So, you know, I, I say that I don't think that there is an easy remedy to those affective responses, but I know for myself, it is, as I had described myself in this transitional space place, I think it the one consistency across that has been always thinking about my structural location and always mm -hmm. thinking about the structures that are at play. And as you come to see more of those internal structures, you can start to name them more, I think, more vigorously. But yeah, I think the remedy really is in continuing as hard as it can sometimes feel to build the community of scholars around you whose expertise you really do value, who can help you read these rejections. And I don't mean just read them. Sometimes they might be reading them, but read them with a critical eye and help you distill what you should be taking from them and what you should jettison completely. So I don't know. It's that's not a resolution, but I think it's a really it's a really challenging place to be, especially for critical scholars, especially for first-gen scholars or racialized scholars. This happens this happens a lot. It's structural. I don't know. How about you? Do you have any thoughts on the managing of that affect? For sure. And I think naming it as epistemic violence is key, I think. And I think for me, look, like I receive a lot of this, not just in terms of funding applications, in terms of like article rejections, in terms of, mm -hmm. gosh, even teaching evaluations. And I think, I think, I don't know, like one thing, and that's what I've learned from you, Nisha, I've created this mental archive of rejection letters mm -hmm. and negative racist sexist student evals negative journal reviews right oh my gosh like we, we had one right with megan right yeah and i don't know quite what i'm doing with that but i think having this as part of kind of my mental archive helps me understand more broadly the structural violences at play right mm. and which is not to say that we don't take critique we take critique right yep. like i can look at a review and say okay you know what they're actually correct maybe i should yep. have bolstered that section or whatever what we're talking about is something different right it's not critique it's about something that's a little bit more structural that's a little bit more violent right mm -hmm. so learning to distinguish between valid critique and i would say i don't know <laughs> racist yeah like that reactions. racist gatekeeping backlashy kind of yeah that we i mean that we are always learning about as we go through all of these different stages of our career i think it's amazing that you have this mental archive but it's also really powerful because that kind of documentation right especially if there is a point where you are able to see it and witness it as a whole I don't know. That can be such a powerful indictment of the audacity of like how this kind of gatekeeping continues to get enacted and reenacted by actual real people, right? Like that's the thing. It's structures, but it's also people yeah. who are doing that, which is, I have a question for you actually on that, because I think that one of the things that has bothered me about the training of all of us as kind of PhD students is that there is so much we are not trained to do 
And one of them is to be on committees like this assessing Mm. work. Mm. So I'm wondering what you take into those committee spaces when you are assessing grants. Like what would be what we could offer listeners who are in that position? So I think, first of all, thank you for raising that question, because I know that you've also taken a lot of time sitting in these committees as well. I mean, we're all overworked, but when it's a committee that matters, we sit on them, even Mm -hmm. if we don't have time. I think for me, this is a signal of the discipline changing as well. And so when Mm -hmm. I sit in on these committees, quite frankly, I look at the ethics of the project. Mm -hmm. I look at questions of ethics beyond university research ethics protocol, i.e., is this research actually harming communities beyond what mm. REBs mention, right? Are the researchers who are putting forward the application, are they the right people to be doing this work? Are the researchers aware of the literatures written mm. by for community members? And are they citing them as well? Are they aware of recent scholarship uh, that has developed in these specific areas as well? Or are they still just citing stuff from like the 1980s? Because I think that also highlights the, and I hate to use the term, but the research relevance. Are they aware Mm. of these new debates, new discussions? So that's what I bring in as well. I also have, I don't know, I also have an eye towards student support Sometimes I get these grant applications because I've sit on these funding applications. You know, I've sit on these evaluation committees too. And I sometimes side-eye application where you're like, oh, you're, we're just funding your trips. <laughs> Are you like not giving back to students, like graduate mm-hmm. students, undergraduate students? Is that not part of the way you're <laughs> structuring your grant, yeah. right? Um, and also questions of, and I know this is such a fraud term, but questions of, Equity, diversity, and inclusion, like are and actually the Tri Council in Canada that is becoming a more central plank of their adjudication, right? But mm-hmm. are you actually more fully trying to grapple with making sure that different researchers and research assistants um, from various communities are part of your grant, right? How about you? What do you do? I think these are all the things, like especially what you've just said around ethics, because I think that. Like these categories, like around feasibility or what are they? Feasibility. There's three categories. I can't remember. But these categories, I think they, these are also political categories, right? And so how we, how we, if we're thinking about feasibility and we're thinking about timelines and we have a really expansive understanding of ethics, that's going to look different, right? Than if we have a really constrained understanding of where ethics are invoked or what it looks like to go through an ethics procedure as opposed to what it looks like to be continually checking in ethically at various junctures in a project. So I think there's there's like, as researchers, as critical researchers, we also have to approach these committees in that way as well, right? By kind of unpacking what do these categories that are treated as so self-evident actually mean. And we can do that in a variety of contexts. It's, of course, not just the tri-council. It's, of course, in hiring committees. It would be, of course, in a range of places where we can have the opportunity to serve. But the other point that I, I wanted to just reinforce that you opened with is the importance of this work, 
And I, I think that I didn't realize early on how intentionally I should be choosing where I focus my labor. But this is one place where you should focus your labor. And so if you have an opportunity to sit on committees like this, if you have an opportunity to do work um, kind of like more structurally on journals or in any kind of aspect of publishing, academic presses, these are really important sites of gatekeeping. And these are sites where I think you can really make an intervention. So I just wanted to 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 signal that these are intentional spaces where I think there is you should be investing. We should all be investing our labor, especially those of us who identify as critical scholars or however that's a big word, but I think you know what I'm saying. For sure. And I think one thing that I've done this a lot, so it's not just one thing, but I've also been sitting on tenure tenure files like I've written like a number of tenure letters and I'm just like I just got tenure like two years ago but then I know what the stakes are right so that's where I've intentionally put in my energies I've sat in as external examiners for dissertation defenses I look at the abstract I look at kind of the tenure file kind of CV and the abstract for the dissertation or even the grant I look at the grant description and where I see potential pitfalls for the applicant that's when I say yes, especially if I know based on prior experience of rejections that the project that they're proposing might not be as legible to those who are quote unquote more mainstream. But it's a lot of work. And so for folks who mm-hmm. are listening and are just like not really aware of the larger politics at play, if there were a service type <laughs> task mm-hmm. that matters, we would argue it's this. Yeah. Thank you so much, Antinisha. This has been such a generative and rich conversation. And for those of you who are disappointed because your funding applications got rejected, chin up, find your subversive mm. community of care, get someone or get a community of people to read through the evaluation letters and take from these letters feedback that would be useful and feedback that's just racist crap that you should just discard. Mm. Yeah. And thank you for talking about this so openly, Ethel. It is. It's like a real blow, right? And we're often feels like we're constantly getting blows. I think it's important to to like expose that, render that transparent. But also, like, I think what you're doing here too is saying that it's actually just not okay. Like that that these kinds of structural harms that function as huge blockages or obstructions or forms of gatekeeping. Like, that's not normal. It should not be normal, right? It is structurally normal in some senses, but it should not be normal. So there are ways that that some of us can try to intervene as well. So thank you for that, Ethel. Absolutely. Thanks, Nisha. And that's Academic Aunties. We're so glad to be back after a bit of a hiatus. As I mentioned in our last episode, I was in the UK for a fellowship where I got a chance to catch up with old friends, make new ones, connect with some amazing colleagues, and even with some fellow academic podcasters. It was awesome. It was the break I needed. Honestly, I had such a great time. A special shout out goes to Dr. Michaela Benson, who hosts the podcast, Who Do We Think We Are? Thank you, Michaela, for learning out with me about academic podcasting and podcasting as a medium. And massive, massive, massive thanks to my dear friend, Dr. Jessica Sadirgo, who hosted me in the Netherlands. 
Thank you also to the fantastic folks at the Center for Care at the University of Sheffield, specifically to Dr. Sue Yendel for being such kind hosts. One of the really great things about my trip was also being able to get a sense of the academic environment outside of North America. It was really eye-opening and I wanted to share these insights with you. So in the next couple of weeks, we will feature interviews with folks who I met during my fellowship. In our very next episode, we will be talking with Dr. Eve Hastikalaf, who I've known for nearly 20 years now. Eve and I talk about the state of academia in the UK. And in the weeks ahead, you will hear from other friends based in the UK and in the Netherlands who share with us their stories and give us advice on being subversives in the academy. Until then, please get in touch with us on Twitter at, at @academicanti. On Mastodon, you can find us at academicantis at mass.to. And send us an email anytime at podcast at academicantis.com. If you want to support the podcast, rate and review us on your favorite podcast app and visit academicantis.com slash support to see other ways to support the pod. Please also consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Today's episode of Academic Antis was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by Dr. Nisha Nath and Wayne Shu. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole. Thank you.